You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year, a comedy podcast looking back at this week in history. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Podbean, iHeartRadio, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. If you want to follow us on social medias or message us with some suggestions for worst ever segments, you can do that over on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, do you have any blue oyster cult? <laughs> no, he doesn't have any blue oyster cult. <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. <laughs> yes, playing the role of Mike Damone, right? Was that his name from Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Yeah, I think it's Mike Damone, yeah. From uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That is such a funny, it's not a funny line. Like in the script, that yeah. would not be funny written down. But the way that guy delivers it is that perfect pause, dirty look, and then the sarcasm of, no, I don't have any bluey to cult. <laughs> Where the hell were you last time? <laughs> yeah, Fast Times Ridgemont High. I have like a lot of millennial friends that like don't know that movie. And I've showed it to a few of them. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them, this is the best teen comedy you're ever going to see. And when we get to the end of the movie, they always say the same thing. Are you sure that's a comedy? Yeah. It definitely straddles the line, I think, in places with Jennifer Jason Lee's story and the pregnancy and all that. Like, all that stuff. It's a lot more mature than, like, even the John Hughes comedies that came out kind of around the same time. And I think the characters were more relatable in Fast Times at Ridgemont High as well. The guy that did the movie, Cameron Crowe, he was very young looking mm-hmm. when he was in college and he actually got permission and posed as a high school student for several months and just wrote down what he saw going around him and obviously changed names and embellished right. and this, that, and the other. But a lot of those story arcs in that movie actually really happened. Wow. Yeah, those are kind of I've read the book. I've read the book and let me tell you, Sean Penn's character, Jeff Spicoli. Yes is not like the lovable stoner he is in the movie. He's a dick. He's an <laughs> asshole in the uh, in the book. Yeah. I was good. I'm not going to, you know, suggest anybody in particular from our formative years, Bill, but like every stoner that we went to school with <laughs> was kind of an asshole, I think, yeah, 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 you yeah. know. So I, I think it, That's true. it played played the type or dirtbag depending on how you want to right or dirtbag wink wink nudge nudge things, yeah. Cameron Crowe was an interesting guy, too, or is still an interesting guy. He wrote the uh, film Almost Famous, which was based on his time uh, writing for Cree Magazine and then for Rolling Stone when he was 15. Right, right, you right, know? yeah. Yeah, guy's an astonishing writer. And when he was 15, he looked like he was eight. <laughs> <laughs> so many fi- uh, uh, people, like, started in that movie and then, like, went on to be super famous. Like, that was Sean Penn's first movie. Right, Phoebe Cates. Uh, Phoebe Cates, yeah, she kind of dropped out of Hollywood, but she had a good thing going for her for a while. Judge Reinhold. Yep. Judge Reinhold, a cameo from Nancy Wilson from Heart. Yep. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee. Yep. Who's still uh, still doing stuff. I just watched her recently in a Netflix series called Atypical. Right. And her character is just like Stacey Hamilton from Fast Eyes, Bridgemont High. It's like the same. It's like, you know what we need? Her. Yeah. yeah. 
So I, we got a scene where they, you know, the main character goes out on a date to a German restaurant and eats a giant knockwurst and then <laughs> cheats on the guy that she's with. <laughs> uh, Forrest Whitaker is in Fast Times Richmond High. <laughs> yeah, that's and, right. That's right. He's yep, the football. He's, he's the football player. Yep. You can tell because he still had that eye. You ever see his brother? His brother looks exactly like him, except for like his eyes are better. No, no, I've never seen Forrest Whitaker's brother. You might have. If you ever seen Forrest Whitaker and think to yourself, "Huh, he's not winking at me," that's probably just his brother. Ah, uh, okay, noted. And I'll then keep Nicholas my eye Cage. Out. Yeah, Nicholas Cage is in it. He's uh, Nicholas Copilor at the time, right? And Eric Stoltz is one of Jess Picoli's burnout friends. Huh. Definitely a good cast and a very good film to enjoy. Go see that movie. Go rent it. You'll be happy you did. And you'll never listen to the cars the same way again. Very true. All right. Before we get the show started, we do have our very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Oh, man. All right. Lay it on me. You remember last week's question there? We were talking about the last NHL player to get away with not wearing a helmet. I remember that I said his name was probably Gordie Howe, and then you laughed at me and told me a different name that I don't remember by now because it didn't sink in. Well, you do remember that we had that question. I do, yes. Okay, so same question, different sport. Oh, man. Who was the last crazy son of a bitch to go (laughs) uh, in the Major League Baseball to go without wearing a helmet at the batter's deck? We'll have to wait till the end of the show to find out just how little I do know. All right. But this is going to be the week beginning, September the 25th. And I think it's your turn to start. It is, in fact. And we are going to begin on September 25th with a celebrity birthday. In 1951. Right out of the box. box, 1951, American actor Mark Hamill is born. Do you know who Mark Hamill is, Bill? Have you ever heard of that guy? Probably best known for his role in Corvette Summer. Or in The Giver. (laughs) No. Um, or as Cockknocker in, Bill, in uh, Jay and Silent Bob's uh, Strike Back movie there. Yes. He's also probably best known. I'm sure you all have already started screaming at your respective devices upon which you listen to podcasts. He is Luke Skywalker, the character that redefined science fiction in 1977. Probably my favorite Luke Skywalker, too, yeah. Oh, you mean like, oh, yeah. all the films, the one in 77. No, a lot of people refer to Mark Hamill as their favorite Joker. He did the voice for the Joker in Batman the Animated Series. Yes, he's my favorite voice of the Joker. Yes, that's that's me yeah, for sure. He does a great job. He does a lot of voice work. He does, yes. I stand by, I know a lot of people disagree with this kind of mentality. There are not many good remakes and reboots. It's It's such a weird thing that everybody hates them yet hollywood just keeps making them yes and everybody goes to see them with like such high hopes like oh my god they're doing they're gonna redo this movie and you go see it like i hate it but i do myself personally love the child's play reboot and if you've seen megan you've seen a lesser version of the child's play reboot because i Uh, thought that one was better uh, megan was really good yeah um mark hamill does the voice for buddy uh, they don't call him Chucky in the reboot. They call him Buddy. Right. And Mark Hamill does the voice for him. Oh. I will have to check that out. I was always yeah. excited when I saw him. This is like back in 1990 when he was on yep. The Flash. Do you remember The Flash with uh, it was on like live yes. action TV? And yes. he played the trickster who was sort of among the rogues gallery of Flash villains who was oh, a really kind of funny guy. That that's right. That's right. I forgot all about that. He also did the voice of the trickster on the Justice League, which was really cool to see him sort of just continue to own that character like 20 years later. 
Must have the same casting agent as Jennifer Jason Lee. You know who we need for this? <laughs> we need Mark, Mark Hamill. Hamill. <laughs> and he drives a Corvette, right? Recently, he was in uh, one of my favorite episodes of What We Do in the Shadows as Jim the Vampire that's trying to get his rent money from Laszlo. I don't know if you've watched that show, but he's really funny. I watched it over your house briefly. Uh, I don't remember much about it. I know a lot of my friends go on and on about it. Yeah, he was really funny in that episode. Yeah, reprised, reprised, reprised his role of Luke Skywalker for the Disney sequels. And you could tell just like watching him, he's just, you could see it, look the look on his face saying, I'm getting paid so much money for this. Good thing. <laughs> <laughs> now I understand what Alec Guinness was saying when he said, I can't say this when dialogue. He was, yeah. Back in when he was my age. Yeah, yeah, when he was my age. Yeah. Yep. All right, moving on to September the 26th, 1969. The debut of the most wholesome glass of milk in American sitcom history, The Brady Bunch. Ah, yes. A staple for syndication, but a show that I actually remember watching when it was first broadcast on TV. Because I am ancient. Really? Yeah. I remember watching it. I'm pretty sure it was on Fridays. Friday nights at 8. And I remember watching uh-huh. it with my mother, sitting in my mother's lap and watching it. And wow. it and being like having a cognizant memory of like turning rabbits a different color in like the last episode. Um, oh, right. That was the season where they brought in Col- um, Cousin, Oliver. Cousin Oliver. Yeah. Because all the kids had kind of aged out a little bit right. at that point. Yeah. At that you point, know, it was Greg- like the Brady roommates. Yeah. Like Greg had moved upstairs. He had his own little like hip pad in right. the attic and all that which now that I think about it must have been hot in California yeah. it must have been hotter than Satan's asshole up there I mean I know it's only a set <laughs> but just thinking realistically uh, Craig, it must have been Craig looks like he's getting there. skinny I need water I'm yeah. dying yeah <laughs> uh, drying up like a raisin drying <laughs> up like a mummy fart up there yeah <laughs> it's so weird to go back and watch like the reruns of it with like an adult eye like, when you're a little kid, you just think, like, man, I wish I was friends with these kids. And then, even as a kid, though, I think I kind of found it unusual that nobody in the family had any friends. Right. Except Did for, these kids except go for to Alice. School? Right? Alice had the meat guy. Oh, yeah. That was it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, I, oh, I forgot what his name was. Yeah, her boyfriend that, like, uh, yeah, he worked at the butcher. Sam. Sam, Sam, Sam the, butcher. the butcher. Yes. Yeah. But, like, the kids didn't have any, like, friends at school or nothing? No. Nope. They only just hung out and played with each other. Yeah. In their community bathroom with which no is, toilet. <laughs> which is which is very strange considering they're all step-siblings of so playing with each other could have had multiple meanings, which they explored sort and, of funnily in the film versions of the TV show. Yeah. Oh, my God. Those movie versions are so freaking good. Yeah, they are very funny. I always wanted when I was a kid, there was if there was one thing I wanted more than anything else that the Brady Bunch had was I wanted the AstroTurf backyard. <laughs> Do you have a particular favorite episode of the show? I like, it was, a, it was a much later episode, but I like the Johnny Bravo, uh-huh. whatever Greg was going to get his uh, a recording Record contract. contract. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like they brought him in and, you know, he recorded a song, you know, the unicorns never flew before or whatever the hell. Yeah. And then they like, completely digitized that well whatever it is at that time it wouldn't be digitized yeah had somebody Uh, else sing (laughs) yeah he completely changed his voice around with like pitch control and reverb and echo and stuff and he was like that doesn't sound like me man and they're like yeah man you're the new johnny bravo and it turns out that they didn't want him 
Really? The, he fit the suit. Yeah. There was a, right. <laughs> there was a suit jacket. In my memory, it looks like something a matador would wear. Yes. Yeah. It was cut like a matador's jacket. Yep. And he fit in the jacket, so they wanted him. And, like, you know, Greg had the artistic integrity to turn it down. It's like, no way, man. I want to do my music, <laughs> man. And, um, and like uh, and like all 1970s TV, this plot line never appeared again in any episode of the show that followed. No. Whereas uh, Alice was like, you stupid son of a bitch, take the money and run. Right. We could, we could have been out of this house. This sack yeah. with its friggin' AstroTurf backyard. Jeez. <laughs> the one that I always looked forward to was the one where they went to Hawaii and found the Tiki Idol and also found Vincent Price in a cave. That was the yes. one I loved as a kid. Loved, loved, loved was that episode. Oh, yeah. The the Tiki Idol was like a bad juju kind of bad luck thing. Yes. Like, oh, this is really cool. Hey, Greg, wear it <laughs> yeah. while you go surfing. And then he, yeah, and he wipes out. Die. Then almost, yeah, yeah. Gets, crashes his head into the coral reef and is nearly eaten by a tiger shark. <laughs> that one was my favorite favorite. And the other one, I don't know if it was the same, like, because that was a two-part episode. Where they lose the plans at an amusement park. And I don't remember if that was a different episode where they went to, like, I don't know, Six Flags. Yeah, that has to be a, yeah that's a, yeah, Magic Mountain. Whenever there was the plans, and then, but then he opens it up and it was a Yogi Bear post. Yeah, like that's right. One, yes, right. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Was that a different episode or was that the same episode as the Hawaii yeah, one? It had to be a different episode because uh, one takes place in Hawaii and the other one takes place at Magic Mountain. Oh, okay. So. So again, Which I, is not in Hawaii. Not in Hawaii. It's roughly 3,000 miles away. <laughs> well, good. It's good to know. All right, moving on to the 27th. September 27th, 1954. The Tonight Show, hosted by Steve Allen, makes its debut uh, on late night at on NBC TV. And this show is still on. Yeah. You could show me a picture of Steve Allen and like three other people, and I'd be like, yep. I have no idea which one Steve Allen He's is. He's a guy in a suit with a pair of glasses on. That's all you need to that, know. That, my, that was my father at uh, somebody's wedding, yeah. <laughs> but like you just said, yeah, The Tonight Show was still on, hosted by Jimmy Fallon, who I'll tell you, whenever he first took over, I was not on board. I was not on board with Jimmy Fallon because I kind of didn't like him when he was on Saturday Night Live. Yep. I just wanted to like yell I yell at my TV screen like, dude, comb your hair. You look like you just woke up. <laughs> Stop laughing. You can't laugh at the jokes because they're not funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but you know what? I, uh, uh, on my lunch break every day, as of this recording, the, rec uh, the writer's strike is still on, so I haven't been able to do it lately, right. but usually on my lunch break every day, I watch the monologues from all the late night shows right. from the previous night. And yeah, Jim, Jimmy Fallon, good for him. He right. He runs a nice tight little ship over there, you know, 69 years after the day, <laughs> giggity, uh, 69 uh, years after the debut of the tonight show. That's cool. Depending on who you talk to, it's still very much associated with Johnny Carson, but both Jay Leno and Jimmy Fallon have really done a good job of sort of making it their own during their periods as host. The same way I'm sure people looked at Johnny Carson and was like, well, this guy's not Jack Parr. Like, why would I want to watch this? You know, and people were like, hey, man, Jack Parr, that's no Steve Allen. Screw this show. Right. Right. But it goes to show that if the concept is strong and the, the host has charisma, it can go a long way. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's a thousand, at least a thousand, uh, you know, talk shows that follow the exact same format. Yeah. You know, for, for better or for worse. I mean, late night 
which was David Letterman's vehicle, is still on. Right. That's uh, Seth Meyers, I believe, that's running that one now. Yes. And there's what the Jimmy, and, the other Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel. Yep. Yeah. He has a cool show over there. And what's the other one that I really like? Oh, and Steve Colbert. Stephen Colbert. That's right. Yep. That's the Late Show. Yes. So yeah. So yeah, and a lot of those have a very, very, very long, you know, pedigree behind them with a with a, a, a Calgary of different hosts. And then there's other ones like we talked about before, uh, like the Chevy Chase show. That la- I, we have way more episodes than he did. <laughs> yeah, or podcast. Yeah, um, or um, Chevy Chase is. Um, and the, the other one there, it lasted a little while, but not very long. Was Joan Rivers? Remember? Yeah, I remember Joan Rivers and uh, Arsenio Hall too. He was on for a while. Yeah, a few years. And he was on twice. Twice. Yeah, they brought it was on Arsenio Hall's show was on for a bit and then it you know got canceled and then they brought it back like 20 years later and everybody was saying the same thing. Did are these reruns? Cuz he looks exactly <laughs> it the look same. Any different, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have a dressing room, he has a closet he hangs upside down in and uh <laughs> eats the, you know, production assistants every now and then to stay young. All right, so September 28th, 1994, Ed Wood, a film directed by your friend of mine Tim Burton. And this may surprise you. It's a Tim Burton film that stars Johnny Depp. Uh, anyway, Ed Wood premieres on that day, on the 28th in 1994. What may not surprise you in this Tim Burton film that stars Johnny Depp is it's the, this is the most sort of straight-on, non-atmospheric film that he ever made. He shot it in black and white. It's a biopic of Edward D. Wood Jr., the director of Plan 9 from Outer Space. Among others. But it covers the period between his writing of and producing uh, and directing Glenner Glenda, up through the end yep. of producing Plan 9 from Outer Space and all of the relationships that take place amongst those films being made, including mm-hmm. the core relationship in the film is his relationship and friendship with Bella Lugosi, who was slowly sort of inching his way towards death and old age. It's a really, really good film. Friendship is a really loosey-goosey term you want to use there. Yeah, well, okay. It's more like a, an acquaintance... Uh, I remember reading uh, or, you know, reading an article or seeing an interview with like Bella Gossi's, you know, surviving family, and they did not speak very well of Ed Wood. They felt like Ed Wood was using Bella. I'm pretty sure that's that why time. Tim Burton cut all of Bella Lugosi's family out of the story. Like he was yeah. married at the time that he made Plan 9 from Martyr's Base. There's no suggestion that he has any family or any friends at all. But again, right. there's some liberties taken with the, the history to make the storytelling work well. And there are times where even I, the guy who complains when things aren't historically accurate, can go, eh, I, can, I can live with this. This is one of those yeah. times. So Your friend of mine, George the Animal Steel, plays Tor Johnson in that yep. movie. Yes. And Bela Lugosi was played by uh, Martin Landau, who, who got an Academy Award for the, for the role. Where would I know Martin Landau from? You would probably only know him from the movie, from the TV show Space 1999. If you ever watch that. Yes, okay. Yep. He was also in Tucker, A Man in His Dream, but I don't know if that came before or after Ed Wood. I just sort of like, the scene that sticks out in my mind is whenever he's going, he's trying to pitch the name Dr. <laughs> Acula. <laughs> like, like, it's just sort of the best th- thing possible. Dr. Acula. I, I like love it. He has Dracula. to do it twice. Like, I get it. He has to do it twice, and then the producer yeah. just goes like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I get it. And then what else you got? You know, it's, it just brushes it right off. That was super funny. I was coming up with a doctor character from one of the haunted houses that I work for. Yep. And I named him Dr. Conian, like Draconian, yeah, right? Yeah. Dr. Conian. And somebody I work with, like, no, you should call him Dr. 
Acula. It's like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yes, way to go for the easy laugh. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, it did a couple of different things. One is it encouraged people to go back and watch Ed Wood's films from that period with a less critical eye. They always made like the worst movies ever made list. And they really aren't. They're just right. low-budget, cheapo kind of garbage horror movies. But they're really fun right. to watch. And to, to have the understanding are, of, that they were made for like zero dollars. It's a lot of fun. Right. I mean, I went, we watched um, Plan 9 from Outer Space during the virtual movie nights era. I was watching it, you know, with you and some other people. And I was like, this is not the worst movie I've ever seen. This is not even the worst movie that we've ever watched during our virtual movie nights. Right. It's fine. It's just cheap. That's yeah, all. it's just cheap. There's a, a character in here played by character actor Norman Alden. You may remember him. He was on like the Sid Marty Croft show as Dr. Shrinker. Pretty sure that was who we played. Dr. Acula. Dr. Acula. But he's the cameraman. And there's this great, the film's all shot in black and white. And there's this one really great scene. Edward comes out with two dresses and he says, which one of these is best on camera? The red one or the blue one? And he looks up and he goes, which one's the red one and which one's the blue one? And Edward looks at them both and he goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm colorblind. I can't see which one is which, but I like the gray one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they're both great. That was, that was one of my favorite lines in that movie. All right, let's go on to the 29th. September 29th, 1977. Italian disco artist Miko releases the Star Wars theme slash Cantina Band record, which goes to number one and was consistently and constantly played in my house for all of 1977 and probably all of 1978 as well. Yeah, more colloquially known as Disco Star Wars. Disco Star Wars. So, yeah, it was essentially the theme to Star Wars with a disco beat behind it. I love it. <laughs> I, I have this album. It's called Star Wars and Other Galactic Funk, and it's great. Yes. This album is amazing. I have the Miko album, The Wizard of Oz, which is all of the music from The Wizard of Oz done sort of Miko style. It's totally worth going to find if you can find it. Yeah, he's got a bunch of stuff up on Spotify, including your Wizard of Oz is up yes. there. Oh, you should all check it out. It's great. Yep. And what upsets me, though, greatly is... One of my favorite Miko songs is not available on any of these albums, oh. all the compilations and stuff like that. Um, so it's the, the Ewok Victory Nub Nub song, but again, done this like disco Miko style. And what's amazing is in the middle, they have, it's supposed to be C-3PO. You know the scene when C-3PO is telling the Ewoks a story? Yes. Of like the story so far, like what's happened? Yes. But it's that. But it's done rap style. But most of the words are all nonsense because it's in Hatties. Yeah. You know, the Star Wars language? Yes. So it's all like... I'm sure the reason that it's not available anywhere is probably because George Lucas still regrets the uh, licensing of the original (laughs) soundtrack to be turned into a Miko record back in 77. I'm sure it was before somebody from Kenner came to him and said, like, 
look, we're kind of a struggling toy company. We'll do 50-50 with you on these action figures or something and see what happens. And all of a sudden, you know, every yeah. single kid in all of the world times 10 wants to be buried in Star Wars action figures, right? But I'm sure it was it was one of those like, well, right. I don't I don't know if I want them to do another Miko record. I'm not sure that that's good <laughs> business. And have that man killed. I don't know if he said that, but... <laughs> What's funny, I'm looking at the album cover now for Star Wars and Other Galactic Funk by Miko. Yep. In the smallest font you can possibly imagine, right above where it says Star Wars, and Star Wars is not in your classic Star Wars font. No. It's in some other font. In the smallest typeset you can possibly imagine, it says, music inspired by Star Wars <laughs> and Other Galactic Funk by Miko. And then it's got like two... People, one male, one female, in uh, in like spacesuits, yeah, like dancing, Grooving. like yeah, everything on this album cover, with the exception of the wrong font, Star Wars. Nothing on this album cover reads Star Wars at all, not even a little bit. I would, I'm willing to bet a, a ice cold can of your soft drink of choice that yep. the record that I had in '77, '78 had Star Wars stylized art either on it or in it and it wasn't the same as the galactic funk record that you have there it was it was it had like a disco on the inside with the characters sort of dancing but really far away and a lot of star fields and things and like even vader was dancing and it didn't make any sense (laughs) but it was there i swear that was there i'm not i know i didn't imagine that um so i'll have to look around and see if i can find the uh the imagery dollar effect yeah yeah maybe maybe it is who knows? The yeah. Miko Mandela effect. I'm looking at one right here uh, called Star Wars Party, huh? And it's got somebody who it's a drawing, you know. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a drawing. It's got somebody that could be Han Solo dancing with somebody that could be Princess Leia, but who knows? Star Wars Party. One of the songs is called "You Are Reckless." I love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and moving on to September the 30th, we have a celebrity birthday. September the 30th, 1971, American actress Jenna Elfman, who up until 30 minutes ago, I wasn't sure if she was Danny Elfman's daughter or sister. I didn't think it could be her daughter because she was, you know, 1971. So that's going to make her 52 years old. So that's going to be a little bit old to be Danny Elfman's daughter. So now I'm thinking it might be Danny Elfman's sister. But then I looked it up, and she is neither. She is married to somebody named Elfman, who yeah, might be Danny Elfman's sister. Yeah. That's not, that is, <laughs> yes, that is not Danny Elfman or Danny Elfman's brother or Danny yep. Elfman's sister. Yes. Right. Just somebody. Yep. <laughs> What's funny with Jenna Elfman is I have, like, fleeting memories of her in TV shows and I guess yep. smaller bit parts in movies, but... Man, when we started to talk about her, I thought, like, man, I can't pin down what she looks like. I had to go find a picture of her to remember who she was. Right. But she's she had- been in a bunch of stuff. It's just that right. a lot of the stuff she's in, it's bit parts. Yes. She started off doing music videos. Like, she's in an Anthrax video. Right. But she was also in Gross Point Blank. Which that's was a she? cool movie. Yeah. She was in Dr. Doolittle. I liked her. That's, like, the first time I saw her, she was in... Can't hardly wait. Yep. Uh, she played an angel. She played a not an angel. She played a character called the angel. She's uncredited. She was a, a stripper on her way home from work. Right, but right. She's got a really good like monologue in the movie about how much she loves Scott Bayo. But not that <laughs> notwithstanding, 
she's done a ton of stuff. Just it's all like little little things. Like, um, did you ever see any of those Looney Tune movies there? With like, it's a mix between cartoon and live action. The only one like, I saw was Space Jam of those. Okay. Oh, so there's another one called Back in Action. She's in that. She's like the mm-hmm. main character in that. But she's got like a lot of like television series bit parts here and there. Kind of like Damone from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Right. Like Murder, She Wrote and stuff like that. But I think the thing that everybody's going to know her for the best now is she played June Dory on the Walking Dead prequel series, Fear of the Walking Dead. Oh, okay. And uh, and I got to meet her, too. I got to meet her. Well, I was working. F- yeah, I was working for uh, a charity event uh, put on by a guy, the by a group called Zombie Leader, mm-hmm. uh, my friend Todd uh, Charity. Um, we They raise money for childhood leukemia. Right. And, you know, they do a lot of Comic-Con stuff. And then what we'll do is we'll go around with the sign and asking the celebrities to come and hold the sign and take pictures and stuff like that. And more than not, the celebrities are more than happy to do it. You know, it's for charity and stuff. It's a good look. If nothing else, it's a good look for them. But she came over and she did the raffle with us. Like she pulled the name out of the hat. And I'm standing right next to her and that woman is tall. Is she? Yeah, yeah, like I, yeah, you meet celebrities and sometimes you're not prepared for how short they are. Right. Like Danny Trejo, if you ever get to see him in person, that's a tiny little dude. Um, <laughs> they always shoot him at low angles up so he looks like he's a lot bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Henry Rollins is another celebrity that I got to meet and I was like, I am astounded that you're not as tall as I thought you were. Yeah, uh, but, when, I, but, when I saw them at club, when I saw his band at Club Babyhead like in 1990. I was yep. I was like, oh my god, he's my height, and I'm yeah. little. Yeah, he's about five seven, I think. He's not <laughs> yeah. very tall. Yeah, he's not but very tall. Jenna Elfman does not fall into that category. I'm like five nine, five ten, and she's taller than I am. And right. she's standing next to me, and I look down, and she's in flats. Right. I was like, damn. Yeah, she's a very tall woman. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up the week. All right, October first, nineteen sixty nine, the Beatles. Not technically their last album, but the last album that they recorded together, Abbey Road, is released in the United States. And I'm sure it goes to number one and stays there for like 75,000 weeks. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much that's everybody's like favorite Beatles album. I mean, some people will argue like, you know, the, it's a toss-up between that and Sgt. Pepper. I know mm-hmm. you said, was it Rubber Soul is your favorite yeah, one? Yeah, Rubber, Rubber Soul is my favorite. Yeah. If it's not your favorite album, you can't argue that it is one of their absolute best. And it's just funny that the way it like occurred. Because they had recorded the Let It Be album. Right. And they were just, you know, about to break up. John was, you know, all wrapped up with Yoko. Paul was all wrapped up with drugs and everybody just hated one another at that point. Right. And they recorded the Let It Be album and they were pretty much gonna wrap it up at that point they were like all right that's it that's that's the end of the beatles right and then paul mccartney even though him and john were not getting along he called them up and he was like all right you know and i know that i was crop let's just go and do one more album and we'll you know let's do something much better than that right so i mean holy cow abby road just like all of a side one is phenomenal you know, mm-hmm. it starts off with Come Together. Yes. And then yes. goes immediately into something, yep. which is George Harrison's 
probably his best work, arguably. It is very good. It's short, though. Like, everything on that record, except for, well, I guess technically you could say Side 2 is a bunch of short things stitched together. But what yeah, surprises a, me when I go sweet, back to yeah. Abbey Road is that everything on it is, like, just about three and a half minutes. It's very, every song is short and punchy. Uh, with the with the notable exception of my favorite Beatles song, I Want You, She's So Heavy. Yeah. That song is right around eight minutes long. You know, that's got one of the, the best guitar riffs in, in rock and roll history. That da, na, 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 na. Yes, that would be used da, da, da. <laughs> would be used rapaciously by uh, Roger Waters in The Wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. It is very similar, isn't it? And then he ended up using a very similar riff again during Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Yes. If I'm going to argue about anything on this song, on this album, I'm going to say the only one I don't really like is Sun King. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I don't like it is... <laughs> the reason why I don't like it is childish. I got the Beatles Rock Band yep. video game. And I love the song Mean Mr. Mustard. Yep. But Mean Mr. Mustard is only one minute long. One minute, six seconds. Yeah. So they tied it together with Sun King. You couldn't play Me Mr. Mustard, Me Mr. Mustard without Sun King. Oh. And Sun King, like all the lyrics are like backwards and gibberish and stuff. Yeah. It's like I don't want to do that song. I want to do Me Mr. Mustard, but you couldn't get away <laughs> with doing one without the other. <laughs> uh, I I never played the, uh, the the rock band version of the Beatles stuff, but this is the one record that I have pretty much known since I was born. So it came out in '69. I also came out in '69 big surprise there and my uncle used to babysit me when i was a an infant and toddler Uh he was like the prototype music nerd so when he was like 14 or 15 years old he would come to my house with his records and sit and watch me in my playroom and just play record after record after record and he played abbey road constantly like i knew maxwell silver hammer before i knew rudolph the red-nosed reindeer Oh, wow. I knew I knew come together before I knew my ABCs. Like I knew these songs like in and out. I've had a, a copy of Abbey Road in some form or another, including the original vinyl that I bought in 1981 when I squirreled away money from delivering newspapers on vinyl. Still, <laughs> uh, it's it's one of the Beatles records that I that I have a deep, deep, like bone deep appreciation for. Even if it's not my favorite one, it's the one that I've known the longest. I work with a dude named Max, and he's actually named after the song Maxwell Silver Hammer. <laughs> so whenever I met him for the first time, he was like, what's your name? Max. Is it Max or Maxwell? He's like, yeah, it's Maxwell. I go, are you named after the Beatles song? He goes, yes, it's awful. I go, no, that's fine. I like that song. That song's fine. <laughs> At least his name's not like Octopus. you know? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, you have a favorite song from the album? I already said mine. It's all of side two. It all just runs into this one. The sweet. The yeah. sweet. Yeah. It's it's that's the one thing that I really t- have taken away from that album and kept with me very closely. I really really enjoy that part. And it doesn't surprise me that I would go on to really love the Who, who do that kind of sweet style of records on a couple of their records that were contemporary to Abbey Road. But Abbey Road's where I heard it first. And uh, the song that stands out that I'm looking at now out of the album uh, with almost double the listens of any other song on the album is Here Comes the Sun, yeah. which has over a billion listens yep. on Spotify. 
That's Billion with a B. Billion with a B. That's the song I learned how to use a capo uh, on my guitar with, was that song. Oh, wow. Yep. Uh, let me just I can't play it for crap, but I did learn how to play it with a capo. That's why I bought a capo, was to play that song. That song alone, just by the way that Spotify pays out, that song alone has generated whoever owns the Beatles catalog these days three million dollars just that song mm. that's a lot of jingle <laughs> i think it's sony right doesn't sony own the beatles catalog yeah. now i mean I, I know he's dead but george harrison would be like son of a bitch it's like the one album that i got two songs on and that's the one that does the best and now and i got <laughs> nothing to prove show for it all right uh right before we get on to our worst movie ever uh we do have our <laughs> our fabulous holiday that we can discuss. Jeff, on September the 28th this week, we're going to be celebrating Good Neighbor Day. Are you a good neighbor? Do you have any good neighbors? I I try to be a good neighbor, but I don't know if I am a good neighbor. I keep my yard clean, and I don't, like, start trouble with my neighbors. But I only have one that I know a little bit who lives on the right side of me if you're in my backyard. And then she's got a little kid, and she's very nice. And then on the other side, I don't know who they are. They've been living there as long as I've lived here, and I think I've seen them four times. The guy's girlfriend, his name is Anaconda or something. That's what she told me, and I was like, "Uh uh-huh. They come out of their house. They must come out only, like, in moonlight, because I never see them. I don't know who brings in their groceries or if they even eat, but yeah. It's like like the guy from Home Improvement there, just an eyes over the fence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but there's no fence. They're just, it would just be a floating (laughs) hat. They like squirrel around, not squirrel, like moles underneath the grass. Yeah. So I had neighbors like that prior to the ones that I have now. The ones I have now, there seems to be a five feet dispute on where the property line is because ah. they're constantly walking their dog in my yard along the fence. And uh-huh. it's like, I don't care. Just don't leave me any landmines, whatever. And they uh-huh. actually mow that area. So I guess... I don't like. I don't care. It's not like I'm building anything over there. Right, right, uh, right. But the people that lived there before, we used to call them the vampires because <laughs> I never, you'd never see them out in the daytime. The guy would like mow his lawn at like eight o'clock at night. Right. You you got vampire neighbors like I do. There's, what does it say on their mailbox? Like N period Osferatu. No, it says Doctor Acula. <laughs> 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 it was funny like nobody in the neighborhood in the direct neighborhood liked them and i was talking to like the neighbor across the street and i was telling him i was like yeah the the vampires over there and he bust out laughing i literally got everybody in the neighborhood calling them the vampires <laughs> okay jeff i do not own any dancing shoes but i love the concept <laughs> right now i do Oh, you do? Go and get uh, your of. dancing shoes on, Jeff, because it's time for... The worst movie ever. Okay, Jeff. <laughs> All this, right. was, this movie was my idea. I was like, you know what movie we got to watch this week? Can't Stop the Music. The Village People Mock Biopic. Yes. And, and you- I fully supported that. Yeah, uh, and I believe that my answer was like, oh, I love that movie. So, <laughs> so um, it was funny because it's not streaming for free anywhere. I told you, I said you're gonna have to pay like three dollars to rent it. You're like, I will pay three dollars. I will pay your three dollars. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I have a long history of enjoying disco music and dance music, and the Village People were an important part of my childhood. Yeah. Because they were so popular when I was like right around getting ready to go to middle school and a little bit before that and a little bit after that, that and that this film was on cable TV approximately 500 trillion million times Yep, between 1983 and 1985 or so when it had finally aged out of being owned by the studio the same way. It's the musical extravaganza that launches the 80s. It's Alan Carr's Can't Stop the Music. You can't stop the music. Once you see it, you'll know why you can't stop the glamour. Do the shake. Do the shake. Do the shake. Do the milkshake. The milkshake. Do the shake. You can't stop the excitement. On this day of the Stop the dancing. You can't stop the laughter, but most of all, you can't stop the music. Okay, so before we get into the rundown of the plot of the movie, which is convoluted at best, yes. uh, disclaimer time. It is almost impossible. To describe this movie without giving into what would be considered now offensive yes. or what have you. This is made in 1980 or 79, 80, somewhere around there. I think it came out in 80, but it was filmed in 79. Yes. Uh, those were different times. So the opinions and descriptions made are not supported by Twibley in any way, shape, or form. But in other words, it happened. Okay, that's the way it went down. It's funny, like, in the film, too, like, again, before we get to the plot description, is Valerie Perrine, like, the main character of the film, yep. keeps saying, like, it's not the 70s anymore, it's nineteen. It's the 1980s. It's not the 1970s anymore, it's the 1980s. And even now, in 2023, we're like, oh, my God, this was terrible. This was such a, wow, you could never get away with this kind of stuff now. Right. So, even, <laughs> even though they recognize the transition between decades... It doesn't yep. span the transition between centuries. No. We start off our movie over here, Can't Stop the Music. Protagonist of the movie, Jack Morrill, which is played by your friend and mine, Steve Gutenberg. A man and with no rhythm. I'm going to put that out no. there. No rhythm no. and cannot sing. No, and he can't act either. Like, I always found him very <laughs> funny as Mahoney in the Police Academy movies. I thought he had really yes. good comedic delivery. But yeah. it's starts and stops there you know and this movie it just does not have the charisma to be the role that he's playing so he's a songwriter and he works in a record store and yes. he's a he's got a, a gig that night working as a dj and he's yes. gonna play his song when he runs the booth but his yes. boss is telling him no you can't have the time off you got to do the inventory inv night. Inventory. Steve Gutenberg says, I quit. And then promptly walks out. He's going to roller skate to the apartment that he's been living at. And he roller skates there for the next 20 or 30 minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's all the credits for sure. Yeah. There's one important thing he says as he leaves the record store, which is important because it never comes up again. And it <laughs> should, which is, I'm going to come back one day and you're going to be selling my records. And... The, 
in a rational movie, the end of the movie would be him going back to the record store and his boss going, oh my God, we've got so many of your records here. But it, it never gets there. No. Nope. Though I was waiting for it. Instead, he's roller skating home and dancing up a storm in that weird kind of mirror split screen that was popular in cinema at the time. Like I said, all the music in this movie goes on entirely too long. And this is right out of the box. First song in the movie, entirely too long. So then we meet the other protagonist of the movie, Samantha, who's played by Valerie Perrine, probably best known for Can't Stop the Music with the Village People. <laughs> no, she was Miss Tessmacher in Superman. Superman That's the movie. Miss Tessmacher! So Jack goes back to the apartment. She's there. He's writing a song. He tells her that he quit his job to be an artist. She doesn't seem to care. She's a re- I'm going to use the air quotes when I say this. She's a retired supermodel who's apparently made enough money as a, re- as a non-retired supermodel to live in a multiple-room apartment with a back deck and a yard in New in York City. In New York City, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that happens, but uh, while she's watering her flowers, Felipe, the if you are looking at the village people, he's like the Native American guy. I don't know how else to describe that. He's dancing <laughs> around and getting ready to go to the club where Jack is going to be spinning records, and he invites Valerie Prime, but she doesn't want to go. She's going to go anyway because he badgers her to do it. And then we cut to the club where he's playing his cr- incredibly crappy song <laughs> in, the, in the DJ booth. You left out something so important. Our friend oh. Felipe is hanging out. I guess he's friends with them or whatever it yeah. is. But he's hanging out in this apartment. And he's the Native American of the village people. Yes. And he's just hanging out in full Indian <laughs> gear. Yeah, like you do, something else. like you do. He's got these Daisy Duke jean shorts on, a full like war battle headdress. You know, the big, big kind of headdress. Yes, war paint on his face and everything. Yeah, and... well, yeah, like it's like, oh, I gotta get ready if we're going to the club. And when he gets to the club, he looks exactly the same, except for the <laughs> feathers in the headdress are now <laughs> are red different. as opposed to blue. Yeah, yeah. I, like my ability to have willing suspension of disbelief had to, I like had to work overtime on that. And here's how I got over the nobody would walk around dressed like this. Nobody can walk around dressed like this. Is that for all of these characters, they're like the friggin' X Men. <laughs> I'm like, all right, no matter what scene they're going to be in, they're going to be dressed like the X-Men. I got it. No right. no problem. I can make that leap, you know? The Burger and King Kids Club, yeah. <laughs> Burger King Kids Club, yeah. The, the, the Avengers. We got it. Like, that's yeah. always going to be what Iron Man looks like. Figured. No problem. I was able to put that aside, but it kept coming back around like, why is the construction worker wearing a hard hat in an office? But and then my brain would say, would shut up and be like, shut up. It's like it's a this around town, yeah. 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 Ultimately, back in the club, Jack's goal is to get hired to be the full-time DJ at the club. He plays one crappy song and then leaves the booth to somebody else and <laughs> goes and hangs around Valerie Perrine, who thinks that everything that he does is wonderful. They right. have a funny relationship. They're literally, I don't know if they're, they're not brother and sister, but they're roommates that don't have a romantic relationship. Yeah, because they're like 20 years apart in age. Well, they, but they make a point of establishing that very early in the film. Like, yeah, we got, there's nothing going on between us. There's zero sexual tension. Right. There never is never going to be. And I, I was like, okay, cool. Everybody can have an attractive friend, or you can be friends and be attractive with Steve Gutenberg. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, either way, whatever. Yeah. She's like 38. I looked it up. She's like 38 yep. at the time of filming this movie. And Steve Gutenberg was like 22. Yeah. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I've dated, you know, out of my generation before, but on screen, it's rarely done. Yeah. So at the club, she's like, 
hey, you know, I used to be a supermodel. I got all these connections. Let me make some phone calls. I think your music's really good. And then it's established that Steve Gutenberg doesn't sing very well. So they're going to get right. other people to sing. So they decide to have this, like, party over at her place and just mm-hmm. get, like, a bunch of people to show up. And like we said, it's like the Burger King Kids Club with the village people <laughs> where, hey, there's this guy walking around town dressed up as, like, a cowboy. Hey, come to the party. We're going to have people audition to sing. Then there's another guy, the construction worker. And every time they introduce somebody that's going to be in the village people, they get their own, like, solo song. Yeah, yes. And everyone is at least five minutes long. I'm not even yeah, exaggerating. It's just, long. like, super, super long. So then they have this party at Valerie's house. Now, Valerie... Why do I keep saying Valerie? Samantha. Because well, her name is Valerie Perrine, but it's oh, Samantha's house. Okay, all right. At Samantha's house, right. So her ex-agent, when she was a model, is trying to get her back because they want her doing commercials for, like, milk or something. <laughs> yeah, which makes that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, There's gonna come be- back and do a commercial. It's, we need you. Right, a giant yeah. ad campaign for milk. We need There's you for gonna- milk. <laughs> We need you. Right. Next, we're going to do bread. This one goes really well. (laughs) Oatmeal. Samantha's like, no, no, no. So her agent, though, like sends her like assistant, Lulu, over. And I'm looking at Lulu and I'm like, I'm not 100% convinced that this is not Paul Stanley. (laughs) This woman looks so much like Paul Stanley or maybe Tim Curry or maybe both. Yeah. Because uh, they both looked very similar at that time. They definitely and, did. And she does. Yep. And now there's a weed smoking scene because Steve Gutenberg <laughs> is super nervous. Lulu gets him high, yeah. Yeah. And they're not high. They're movie high. You know, he's right. like seeing double and stuff like that. I, like Unless those things were laced with like angel dust, he was fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, right. So meanwhile, there was a purse snatching. The purse was snatched... Uh, not a purse. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a wallet snatching or a stick up or whatever. Uh, your friend and mine, Caitlyn Jenner. This is where it gets a little dicey. Uh, Caitlyn yes. Jenner at this point in time in the, in her life was known as Bruce Jenner, who was an yes. Olympic decathlete. And right. Very famous. And was for, very famous, yeah, for his yeah, Olympics. That sort of thing, yeah. So for clarification's sake, we will be using... Bruce, because that's who he was when he was filming this movie, not Caitlyn Jenner when she is who she is now. Right. Yes. We will. I, we will treat them like two different people at this point in time, just well, for clarification. Just for yeah. clarification, because the character that they're playing is male. So Bruce Jenner is walking down the street with a cake, and he plays a lawyer. Yes. And this old lady like pulls up to him, and oh no, this old lady <laughs> like falls right. down. Yeah, this old lady yeah. like falls down in the street. And he's, like, trying to help her. And then she, like, pulls out a gun and, like, holds him <laughs> yeah, that's up. Right. And, she and then gets on up, the, yeah. Yeah, she gets on the back of a moped and, like, drives away. Apparently, she pulls this stunt a lot because they, everybody knew who they were talking Was it an old lady with a moped? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was really funny. Yeah. I don't know how his character was even brought into the story. Like, why he was bringing a cake. I don't know how he got invited to the party. I don't know if he was a lawyer for the woman who was trying to get... Samantha to come back and be the face of milk or if it was like some like romantic thing that happened in a, the minute that I like got up to get popcorn and went to the bathroom or something so I was completely baffled by his character the entire time he was on screen yeah he had a thing for Samantha right because yeah it was like I a remember that but- scene at the end yeah 
Yeah, but so, I don't remember why he does. I don't remember why yeah. he's at the party. And then he, like, throws a fit, like, well, if these are going to be your friends, I'm leaving. And yeah. he, like, takes off. And I was like, all right, we'll see you later, asshole. But it's a little too wild for me. <laughs> yeah. If you hang around with people like this doing line dances to sort of quasi-crappy fake disco music, I'm not staying. Yeah. Yeah. So they have this audition, and they find, you know, the majority of the uh, of the what's going to be the village people. And then Bruce Jenner, his character, like, offers up his law office where they right. can hold more auditions. So this is And where, rehearsals, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is where the biker guy comes walking in. He walks right. in, and they're like, can you sing? And he sings, like, three verses of Danny Boy that goes on forever. <laughs> yeah, it's long. And it's a long one. They're like, well, you're hired because you got a big mustache and you look awesome. And he's like, I didn't want to sing. I was coming here to pay a lottery, t- uh, a fine for a parking <laughs> ticket or something. So... You know, middle, 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 middle. Uh, she tells her agent that uh, she'll do a commercial for your stupid milk stuff if the village people can be in it. Right. They make this commercial for milk, which is longer than most infomercials that I've ever seen in my life. Yes. I'm watching this. I This was another one of those movies where it took me a couple of settings to get through. I think it took me three. Okay. So I'm watching this movie and I'm like, Jesus Christ. All these songs are so long, and it's going on and on. They're singing. There's only so many things you can say about milk. It's white. Yeah. It's creamy. It's delicious. And did I mention white? Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. That, that whole musical number, is, I, I swear to God, is like 15 minutes long. It is so it, long. It goes on forever, and I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, this is long. And then finally the song ends. I'm like, oh. And then, yeah, it, was just, and it then, ended just as I was getting to the point where I was lactose intolerant. Yeah. And then Samantha goes... One more time, and it goes on that like three more times. Yeah, yeah, it was so, it was it was rough. Again, middle, middle, middle. They raise enough money. They're gonna have a party, and then the village people get signed. They play my favorite village people song, "Can't Stop the Music," and yes, that's basically the end of the movie. It's like you well, said, there, there wasn't a, a lot. Of, there's a lot of middle in there, but it, whatever. There's, like, no conflict anywhere in the movie, so that's, like, a whole storytelling component that is completely missing. But there's some other stuff that's sprinkled in that makes the film really watchable. One is Samantha's attempt to get the village people signed by Marrakesh Records. Marrakesh Records is an ersatz Casablanca, which is the record company that the village people was on. Right. It's run by a guy named Steve Waits, played by hilarious character actor Paul Sand, who's constantly answering the phone, and that's the reason that he and Samantha broke up in the past, because yep. he couldn't stop talking on the phone when they were together. And he yep. does that literally all through the movie. It was the best running gag in the film, was like him doing that. He's great. He I end- like that guy. He's in a bunch of stuff, yeah. They, th- he is. And they end up plying him with food from a Jewish, de- from a Jewish deli in New York on yep. his private plane, where they hold him hostage to make him sign the village people, which <laughs> I thought was hilarious. So there's that aspect of it that's really funny. The the other thing that we didn't talk about is the only song in this film that the majority of the audience would even recognize today yep. is YMCA, which they do this extended long, effectively music video, which got cut down into a music video for MTV. Yep. And it's like, it sits in like the, right at the beginning of the second third of the movie. And the, the third third of the movie, right? At the I end would of like to thirds. point out. I'd like to point out at this point in time that this movie was rated PG. And <laughs> yes, it was. It is a very rare occurrence where you see full frontal male nudity <laughs> in a PG movie. But yeah, there it is. There, there um, it was. Well, while I'm watching the 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 YMCA scene, 
And there's this like camera pan where they're in like the, the male shower with like a good dozen naked guys. And I'm like, did I just see what I thought I just saw? Yes, I did. In, yes, I in did. Grand scale. Yes. I was sort of taken aback by it because I remember the video with all like the karate guys and the wrestlers and the fake boxers and all the other stuff and the gymnasts and everything else going on in the YMCA. Like it's this crazy room full of everybody doing all exercises of any kind all the time. And the biggest goddamn YMCA I've ever seen. Yeah. Right. And I'm like bopping along and I'm like singing in the back of my head because I've heard this song 900 million times. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's a shower and I'm like, oh my God, there's penises every place. Yeah. And then it cut, it cut to Valerie Prine in a hot tub and you can see her boob. And I was like, is that Valerie Prine's boob? And then it went back. It was like it whipsawed back into the shower. I was like, no, no more penises. And there was, <laughs> <laughs> they were everywhere. And then it, it never does it again. And I went back in the interim after watching it yep. to see if I could like, if I wasn't just imagining things. I went and I found like as many of the videos as I could find that ported to come from the film and yep. none of them were the video. It was the MTV video that was cut down. So that right. must be what they include as an extra on the Blu-ray of this sure. of this movie. But, oh my God, I cackled. Weirdest part about all of this is, one, who wrote it. Uh, the guys that wrote it were actually the guys that wrote the screenplay adaptation of Grease. Yep. And knowing that, you can kind of see it in the, uh, in the directing and all that. It is a very, very much a 1970s musical. Yep. What makes it a little bit different than Grease or Xanadu or some of the others that came around at the time was those made money. <laughs> th those those made money and they weren't there was no there was no like soapy penis theater. Yeah. And and two, they only used licensed music from the village people. There were no other songs that were like written for the film, like unlike in Greece or unlike in Xanadu. So the the subset of music that they had was very, very small. So they couldn't do huge musical numbers until they do Can't Stop the Music at the very end of the thing. Which goes on forever. It, yeah, it's still playing. Yep. Yeah, it's still playing now. And the last point of interest before we wrap up this, this segment over here is this movie was directed by Nancy Walker. Now, I yes. know Nancy Walker has a long and storied career. She was in a Happy Days spinoff called Blansky's Beauties. And she was very popular on television in the you know late 70s, 50s yeah. and early 60s. Yeah, and into the 70s. But at this point in time, in early 1980, her biggest thing that she was known for is she played a character named Rosie who worked at a diner for <laughs> commercials for Bounty's Paper Towels. She, the quicker yeah, picker rubber. Quicker rubber. Now, yes. Yeah, and now she's directing a Village People movie? Well, admittedly, she she also directed a, a bunch of different TV episodes and stuff because she was she had a big part on Rhoda and some other shows in the seventies. But she always did the bounty paper towel ads, like I think from the beginning of her career all the way mm -hmm. until the end of it. But did all this other stuff as well. I'm waving around my hands like a crazy person as I say this, yeah. but um, she has a cameo in the film. Do you remember where she was? No, I didn't notice. So it's when Samantha's about to get into the taxi cab to go to Marrakesh Records. She comes out to try and get in the cab, too. She's got a bag of groceries. Samantha ends up beating her with a loaf of French bread before she puts it back oh. in the bag and sends her away. That was okay. Nancy Walker. Oh, okay. I did see that, but I didn't notice that was Nancy Walker. Yep, that was her. That's funny. I, I thought you were going to tell me she was one of the penises hanging off the... Uh, <laughs> the <laughs> no, no, yes, she was Because uh, she she's, not, not. I mean, she's, she's not a very large woman, so she, they're no, probably going to pull she's it she's roughly half the size of Valerie Perrine. Yeah. Why is that penis wearing a handkerchief around her head? <laughs> All right. Uh, before we wrap up the episode, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Excellent. Hey, Bill. 
just make up a name at random and we'll see if you get it right. Who was the last player in the in MLB in Major League Baseball to be the cuckoo bananas nutcase to go out there into the batter's box not wearing a baseball helmet? Uh, I'm going to say it's uh, Reggie Two Shoes Jason Jackson Johnson who played Close. for the I don't even know <laughs> Bob Montgomery, and he played for the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, you may have heard of them. They're uh, they, I have. They they have a field at a team just like just up the street over here. So yes, uh, they are local boys to us. Yeah. All right, but that's gonna wrap up the show for this week. We'll see you guys back here in seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. If you have friends, you should tell them about our show. And if you don't have friends, tell the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. <laughs>